Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> Good evening. I would like us to uh, turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, and I would like to read a few verses, beginning at verse 1. I'm sort of away between two stools tonight because I'm an authorised King James man, born and bred, but I've got a new Bible tonight, courtesy of Nigel, Tommy and the girls, and it's the new King James. So I'm a little confused, to say the least. So some of my quotations will be in authorised, and my readings will be in New King James. So we're reading from the New King James, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, and we're reading from verse 1. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paraplegic who was carried of four men. And when they could not come near because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paraplegic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paraplegic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said unto them, Why do ye reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paraplegic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of God has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paraplegic, I say unto you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And we know the Lord will bless to us the reading of his precious word. And just one other verse as John the Apostle records the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. The Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have penned their account of this miraculous healing. And in so doing, they not only have informed us of a miracle that took place in the city of Capernaum, but they also have presented to us an outlay of a plan, a plan that works. And I praise God for the plans that work. There is one used to be on TV, he used to say, I love it when a plan comes together. And when I read God's word, I am thrilled when a plan comes together. When it may seem, as far as human concerns are, it'll not going to work, it'll not happen. Yet, where God is concerned, he brings all things together, and the plan comes together, and the plan does work. But before... We look at this particular plan that worked. I want us to just set the scene of the situation. 
Matthew in chapter 9 tells us that Jesus, he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. We are also reminded by Matthew in chapter 4 that Jesus had left Nazareth and had established a new headquarters in Capernaum. Jesus, prior to coming back into Capernaum, had been found with the Gadareans, as Martin reminded us this morning. He had gone over. He had stilled the storm. He had entered the land of the Gadareans. He had been met by a man who had been possessed, one who had posed great problems to society, the men of that area had tried to resolve the problem. They had bound him with chains and cords, but to no avail. But when he met with Jesus, everything changed. The very demons themselves, they asked permission. They didn't wait to be cast out. They asked permission from Jesus that they may leave this man and enter into the herd of swine that were feasting on the hillside. And Jesus gave them permission they entered the herd of swine, and we know the story too well. They ran down the hillside into the sea and were drowned. The people came out to see what had happened. They saw the man seated and clothed and in his right mind. They also saw the herd of swine floating in the sea. They weren't concerned that the man had been healed, that he had been restored that their problem had been solved, that that which had been, as they would term it, a blight on their society for maybe so long had been solved. I feel they were more interested in the profit margins that they had lost and the swine that were in the sea. And they said to Jesus, leave our shores. We don't want you here. We don't want to hear what you have to say. We don't want to see your miracles and your wonderful healings and deliverances leave our shores. So Jesus entered the ship and came to Capernaum. It was to this place he returned. And as Mark 5 reminds us, when he arrived, it was noised abroad that he was back in Capernaum. We should not overlook the fact that he came to Capernaum, that he had left Nazareth we need to understand why he left Nazareth. For the people of Nazareth had watched the Lord grow up from boyhood to manhood. They had been friends with them. They had associated with them. They no doubt had been his customers at the carpenter's shop. But their familiarity bred contempt. They were opposed to his mission. And their bitterness was obvious when they intended to murder him. For as Luke reminds us in chapter 4, that they rose up, they thrust him, that is Jesus, out of the city. They laid him onto the brow of the hill whereupon the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But Jesus' time had not come, and he passed through them, and not one of them was able to lift a hand to do him harm. Whatever they had heard or witnessed during what must have been almost 30 years of his residency in the city, they remained unimpressed. Mark in chapter 6 reminds us of their attitude and of the words they used when they, he wrote, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joas, and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Again, in chapter 6, 
Mark records for us even Jesus' words. And he said, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Their rejection was complete. What had they turned away from their city? What blessings, what miracles, what healings, what ministries. The adjectives go on and on to think of what they turned down when they turned down Jesus. But Jesus had rejected them. Jesus now sought a new home. His action, if he had stayed, would have been contradictory to the teachings of God. For we are made aware in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, God speaking, my spirit shall not always strive with man. The Lord's action in leaving Nazareth suggested that for that city, the time of rejection had come. Jesus' attitude was one he repeated to his disciples when giving them instruction in Mark chapter 6, where he says, And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when ye depart hence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. For verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Nazareth where the Lord grew up, where the Lord lived for the majority of the years of his life on earth, and yet Nazareth, who rejected the Savior. Nazareth had a reputation. It was not a nice one. They had a bad name for moral and religious abuse. And while does Nathaniel's words recorded in John chapter 1 bear evidence of that when he was told that the Master was looking at him, he says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? The reason for explaining this is to make this point that Jesus will not stay where he is not wanted. Jesus does not always get into the house. There are some houses where the door is shut in his face. And this is the picture that has been presented in Revelation chapter 3. We're made aware sometimes he comes in uninvited as he did when he stood among the disciples after his resurrection. And also we are made aware that when the invitation is given, he will come in and tarry for those who he traveled with on the road to Emmaus when they issued the invitation. Jesus didn't turn them down, but he came in and dwelt with them and made himself known unto them. Surely, if any man open the door, I will come in, is the testimony of Jesus. When Jesus was in the house, it was noised abroad. You know, I rejoice this evening that Jesus is in his house. He's present with his people. He's there not just to fulfill an obligation, not just for a Sunday night service, but he has a plan, a purpose for being here, as he has a plan and purpose for you being here this evening. My prayer is that by his Holy Spirit, we will welcome him into our hearts and lives, that our ears may be tuned, that our hearts may be open to hear and receive what Jesus would say unto us. For I believe this evening God has something to say to each and every one of us. Jesus was found in the house. 
it is suggested that it was Peter's house. For in Mark chapter 1, he entered into Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. He took her by the hand. He raised her up. He delivered her from the fever. And she got up and ministered to him. We can sort of maybe put some emphasis on that, that Jesus wasn't in the business of owning property. For we are made aware in Matthew chapter 8 of the certain scribe who was inclined to follow Jesus. And he told him that he was going to follow him. And Jesus said, The foxes of holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. I believe, as indicated, Jesus was found in Peter's house. That Peter's house was the base from which he operated when in Capernaum. But we need to realize that in the house or in the heart, Jesus cannot be hid. For where Jesus' power is being manifest, many will gather together. For as we are instructed, he will not send the hungry empty away. He has filled the hungry with good things. His desire is that we may leave his house this evening, not in want, but full to overflowing, having fed upon his table, having fed from the master's table the food that will sustain and support us physically, mentally, and spiritually. But before we move on to the plan, just one little footnote regarding Capernaum. He adopted it as his own city. And here occurred some of the most significant events of his ministry. Jesus pronounced, nevertheless, a curse on Capernaum. For we read in Matthew chapter 11, And thou, Capernaum, with art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained until this day. What a terrible indictment to the city of Capernaum. They didn't reject him as Nazareth did, but they didn't embrace his ministry. Even the signs that he performed, when thinking, having seen such marvelous miracles being performed, that man's attitude would have changed and that they would have been opened up to the things of God. But so to our plan this evening. And I want to view it under three titles. The helplessness of the world presented in the paraplegic man. The responsibility of the Christian church as represented in the four who brought him to Jesus. And the all-sufficiency of Jesus in that with him he not only is willing, but with him all things are possible. The helplessness, sick of palsy, as the authorized version puts it. Sickness makes one unfit to enjoy many things in life. And for those of us who have experienced uh, health problems, we are very much aware of that fact. It limits what we can do, what we can get involved in, where we can go, and so on. But this is the situation that was found on this occasion. Well, are we familiar with the saying, your wealth is your health. We take it for granted until it is gone, and then we begin to realize how much we have lost if our health has disappeared. 
sin is a sickness the soul has, a sickness that robs the soul of the mercies of God. The love of the world deprives the appetite for the bread of heaven. Matthew again speaking in chapter 9, Jesus records Jesus' words, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. The physicians will tell us, and I've heard it mentioned on more than one occasion, that one of the biggest problems they face is convincing their patient that they are ill, convincing their patient that they need help, convincing their patient that they need medication. And once they have crossed that hurdle, then things move quickly on and the patient is treated and the majority make a full recovery. Jesus said, they that are whole need not a physician. He was sick. He was sick of a palsy. That is, he was helplessly sick, deprived of the power of action. He was unable to do anything for himself. I can well imagine this dear man days after day seeing things, wanting to do things and saying, if only I could. If only I could get off this bed. If only I could get up on my feet. If only I could move. I could be do. I could be involved. I could experience. But this man was completely helpless because of his sickness. His sickness deprived him of all ability to act. Surely such is the true condition of all who are without Christ. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 reminds us the heart is deceitful. The writer in Proverbs chapter 15, speaking of the world, he said their works, their ways, their thoughts are displeasing to God. The hopelessness of the world. But what of the responsibility of the Christian church? In their account of this happening, we are made aware of Christian love, brotherly love that was shown to this dear man. For it tells us he was born of four. These four men carried the sick and helpless one to Jesus. And in so doing, shows us what can be achieved where united effort is in operation. One might easily say, I can do nothing for you. But four together could say, we can carry you and bring you to Jesus. Sadly, how many perishing souls are cruelly neglected for the lack of a united effort among the Lord's people. The actions of these four nameless friends are worthy of looking at this evening. For not only were they faithful friends, but they were faithful. Jesus didn't look upon their appearance he didn't comment on the way they were dressed or at what they were doing, but he simply acknowledged he saw their faith. The scriptures remind us without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to release the power that is found in Jesus Christ. These men had faith. Jesus took note of it. To him, this was a tremendous sight. 
four noble, trusting hearts. They believed that Jesus had and was willing to give what this poor man needed. They carried him to the fountain of life. They did their part believing, and their faith was rewarded. For as we are recorded, when Jesus saw their faith, things began to happen. But not only had they faith, but also they had courage. For when they could not come nigh for the press, they uncovered the roof. Those who come to Jesus may meet with many difficulties. For these dear men, there was a crowd of hearers around the door. What a problem. What a difficulty faced them. The scripture said they took him up onto the roof. The question I posed myself was this. Was the roof the last resort or was it the first resort? And as I thought on I thought of these men. I thought well, they're reasonable men. They would be think men that could think, men that could work out situations. And no doubt as they saw the crowd around the house, they thought to themselves, hey, how are we going to get this guy into Jesus? But then they would think, well, when people see the situation, they'll move out of the way. They'll make an avenue. And if they don't let us in, they'll put their hand to the man's bed and they'll pass him along till he's in front of Jesus. But what were they to find? And the picture I have is them approaching. Nobody's moving out of the road. They're tapping somebody on the shoulder and they start to point to their friend on the bed and they begin to explain the situation, appeal to their good nature, appeal to their generosity, but they come up against a brick wall. All as these people say, be quiet. When you're talking to me, I can't hear what Jesus is saying. I'm not giving up my place. I'm not moving. You know, he came up against a human brick wall. For around the house, there were many different types of people. There were those, no doubt, who had needs, who had genuinely gone for Jesus to meet their needs. We were made aware there was religious leaders in the house. And there was other people, people who I would refer to as spectators. They wanted to be where the action was. They wanted to be where things were happening, where things were going on. They wanted to see. They wanted to hear. They wanted to be able to say, I was there. I seen it. I heard it. But they had no desire whatsoever to be participators in what was taking place. They wanted to hear Jesus but not do anything about it. They wanted to see his miracles, but they didn't want it to affect them in any shape or form. And they were there spectating. One commentator speaking on spect spectators refers to those who are found in many of the churches. They're in their seat at every service. They want to be where things are happening. They want to be where the action is, but they don't want to get involved. If you sit in their seat, you'll hear about it. If something's going on, don't ask me. Hands off. I'm not getting involved. And even to the extent of even being involved and even bringing someone to Jesus, no time for it. All as they're interested in is themselves. It's me, 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 and nobody else. These spectators, I believe, were such people. They had no compassion. They had no longing to see a man who had a great need have his need met. 
They were aware Jesus was in the house. They were aware he was powerful and he had the power and authority to meet the need. But they were unmoved. How hardened their hearts must have been. These men, their request was ignored. But you know, they didn't give up because there was a crowd of difficulties in the way. Nor wait for a more convenient season. No, for there is, where there is a will to go to Jesus, there is a way, even if it should be down through the roof. Their method of taking a man to Christ caused a great deal of dust and confusion and doubtless a good lot of unfavorable criticism. But the Lord never finds fault with the way we come if we only come believing. I was sitting this afternoon having a quiet thought and thinking about these guys on the roof and I thought, well, what would happen if they came to my house? I wonder how would I feel? More importantly, how would my wife feel? All that dust and dirt coming down into the best room in the house. But you know, there's no mention of that. Peter doesn't mention that uh, as his house and they're wrecking my house or anything else. He was just with Jesus, praising God. Someone was making an effort and they were bringing him to Jesus. You know, if you can't get them in as others have come, let them down through the roof. If you can't get them out at the gate, let them down over the wall in a basket. If they don't understand the word believe, try the word come. If they will not come in, go out to them. The responsibility of the Christian church. But what will they say? Will they let, well, let them say, although they should call you a roof-breaking fanatic, what of that if sinners are saved? Some will never come to Christ unless they are brought. When a man is really anxious to be saved, he will not be ashamed to be helped. The writer in Acts chapter 8 reminds us of the Ethiopian eunuch who Philip was sent to. His soul was in great distress. He openly invited Philip to come in and explain the scriptures to him. And having had the scriptures explained, he received Jesus and was baptized. The Philippine jailer in Acts chapter 16 Again, was not afraid to ask the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Not only to ask the question, but to listen to the answer. And having heard the answer, to have responded to the direction and instruction given. The responsibility of the Christian church. But what of the all-sufficiency of Jesus? I rejoice that Jesus is a power source indeed a divine power source. For we are often saying there is power in the name of Jesus. In verse 8, we see Jesus' power to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. For we are made aware that all things are naked before him. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can be hid from him. We may hide things from our friends and our family, but all things are open and clear to Jesus. But not only was there divine power, but there was power to forgive. For Jesus said, Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. This was spoken when he saw their faith. 
Surely this is the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God to everyone that believeth. The question therefore must be asked this evening, is the gospel to you? I hope so, or I know so. Surely we cannot expect forgiveness at the judgment seat when it is written as it quoted in verse 10 of this passage, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He not only has power to forgive sins, but also power to heal. Arise, take up thy bed and walk. The psalmist in Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He forgiveth all thy iniquities and healeth all thy diseases. He wipes the slate clean when we come to him, when we confess our sins to him. He's not only faithful and just to forgive us, but he wipes the slate clean as if we had never sinned at all. He does not cleanse, he does not cleanse us from the pollution without delivering us from the power of sin. In Christ, we not only have the forgiveness of the past, but also we, have the renew we are renewed by the Holy Spirit. We are made new creatures in Christ Jesus. But also there was evidence seen. When a man has been saved by Jesus, it must be seen in the changed life. For this man, Jesus said, Arise, he arose. And immediately he arose. The bed that had borne him, he now joyfully carries. There is a real rising up when we come in our weakness to Jesus. For as the writer in Ephesians 2 says, we are quickened and raised up in Christ Jesus. Also, he went forth. When he went forth before them, all they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it in this fashion. It was something new. They had never seen it like this before. They had never experienced anything like this before. But it had such an impact upon them. Note that this is a new fashion. It did not come from the Prince of Ur, but from the King of Glory. Matthew records for us in chapter 28 the words of Jesus in which he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Jesus calls us all whose sins have been forgiven to bear witness to him and to pray that others may follow him. Again, John writing in chapter 6 records Jesus' words when he said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And the challenge this evening is this. Is Jesus in your house? Is Jesus in your life? Doors, they are a important and vital part of any building. And depending on the job they're called upon to perform determines the makeup of the door. Whether they're security doors, safe doors, house doors, or whatever. And they all may be constructed differently, and they all may carry various titles. But one thing all doors do is that they keep in or they keep out. And the picture that is being presented to us this evening is Jesus being kept out. He's on the outside, knocking the door, wanting to come in. So often, we apply 
that illustration to the unsaved. And if this evening you have as yet never had that personal experience with Jesus Christ, that you've never come to that point of acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, of accepting that what he did on the cross of Calvary was to pay the price for your sin, that you have not acknowledged Jesus to Jesus, that you are a sinner and that you need salvation, you can do it tonight. Jesus is knocking at that door. You don't have to make a long prayer. If you agree with what I've just said, you've just got to say, Jesus, I believe in you. Save me. That's all's required. And Jesus will come in and he will dwell and live with you. But also, I believe Jesus is knocking not only at the sinner's door, he's knocking at the church's door. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 3 and of the Laodicean church and their comments, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Within Christian church today, there are those who have their programs, they have their wealth, they have their, their buildings, they are involved in charitable acts, they're able to do great things in supporting different charities, different things that need money and help. But you know, they have no time for God. They have their plans, they have their programs, but it doesn't include Jesus. They're like the Latter-day Church. They have everything of worldly possessions. They're able to do many great things, but they have no room for Jesus. Jesus not consulted with regards to their plans. Jesus not involved in their meetings. They have shut Jesus out. And because of that, we have evidence, have we not? Churches adopting things that are contrary to Scripture, churches going down roads that are contrary to the teachings of Scripture. Why? Because Jesus isn't in the house. They're not taking note of Jesus. They're not consulting Jesus. They're doing what seemeth right in their own eyes. And Jesus is knocking at certain churches' doors. And he says, I want to come in. I want to restore the status quo. I want to rectify that which is wrong. I want to put you on the right track. I want you going in the right direction. I want you to fulfill the plan and purposes that I have purposed for you as a church, as a fellowship. Jesus is knocking at the door. But also he's knocking at the Christian's door. My years of experience have brought me in contact with individuals. And to say that they're saved, yes, they're saved. Jesus has knocked at the door and they've opened the outside door and they've let him into the hall, as I said. And they've closed the door. But off the hall is all these other doors. And on these doors it says, strictly private, no entry. They have let him in to this wee part, this wee corner of their lives. They've accepted him as Savior and Lord. But hey, that's as far as he's going to get. They, these are the rooms. These are my domain. These are where I want to be and what I want to do. But you know, when Jesus is in the house, he wants to fill the whole house. And it's only as Jesus has free course in our hearts and lives where he's filling every part, every hallway, every room, every avenue in our, in our lives that we will know the joy that is found in Jesus. Well, does the hymnist say, Jesus is the joy of living. 
That is the reality. But for that to be a full reality, he needs to have full access to every part of our being. Jesus is knocking at the Christian's door. He has great plans, great purposes for you. I think of the city of Nazareth, what they lost out on. But I also think of many Christians, what they have lost out on over many years because they have refused to let Jesus move out of the hall into the other rooms of their heart and life. Jesus is knocking this evening. But also, let's not forget that Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. As his word says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock.